The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you'd like to go to children's church, please join the volunteers by the kids zone sign. If it's your child's first time going to children's church, please go with them to check them in. Thank you, Paige, for reading that. We are in the book of Exodus, and we're looking at the kind of the second half, not the ten plagues toward the beginning, but at what God is like as he leads his people, as they're going towards the promised land, but mainly that in that journey, what provisions are. And this morning, we'll look at a provision of song. That's what God gives his people, song. Um, But one of my favorite movies, if it's on the TV live, I will watch it. You can ask my wife, is Walk the Line. And it's this story about Johnny Cash and... 
there is a, a scene earlier in the movie where he is this traveling salesman door to door and he is void of success. He can't sell anything. And kind of there's this last ditch effort for him to make it. And so he goes to Sun Records in Memphis and he goes and he and his band, it's a loose word, uh, play a song for this producer, Sam Phillips. And he's playing this, this kind of lighthearted, lofty gospel tune. And he's playing this, this tune with his band and trying to have this pitch to, to get on the record label. And, and this producer stops him and this conversation begins. And stops him and he says, stop, stop, stop. Gospel, I don't market gospel. And in fact, gospel like that, it doesn't sell. Johnny Cash says, is it the song or is it the way I sing it? And this producer says, it's both. And Johnny Cash says, what's wrong with the way I sing it? The producer says, I don't believe you. And then Johnny Cash says, you saying I don't believe in God? And he says, in response, you know exactly what I'm saying. You and I, we've heard that song over and over again, a thousand times. We've heard that song just like that, just like how you sang it. And Johnny Cash says, well, well, you didn't let us bring it home. And this producer scoffs at Johnny Cash and says, bring it home? All right, let's bring it home. He says, if you were hit by a truck and you were lying out in a gutter dying, and you had time to sing one song, One song people would remember before your dirt. One song that would let God know what you felt about your time here on earth. One song that would sum you up. You're telling me that's the song you'd sing. That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it. Or would you sing something different? Something real. Johnny Cash would then go on to sing... Folsom Prison Blues, and in that moment, his life's forever changed. His career's launched. In a moment that changes everything for him, it's marked by a song. And it's because this record producer looked at him and said, the song that grabs the, the affections of the heart are the songs that look at the realities of life and then say something of God and to God. And in Exodus 15, we see a chapter that changes everything because we see a chapter that's marked with song. 1 to 14 in the book of Exodus, the chapters 1 to 14, talk about how God has freed them from the the captors and the oppressors of the Egyptians. He's freed them from, and he's brought them out. And there's a song And then chapters 16 to 40 talk about what God will do, these provisions of how I want to be in a relationship with you, Israel, and what I'll give you to show you that and provide for you. And you'll learn and unlearn how to be under the Egyptians, and you'll learn how to be under me because I'm a good God. And what changes everything, what marks that shift is a song. And here we see the fact that Moses sings a song that everyone will know. In fact, it's going to be echoed into eternity. But this morning, let's look at a few things. We'll look at what's a song. First, what's a song. Second, um, what we sing. And then third, why we sing. What's a song, what we sing, and then why we sing. But with that in mind, as we study an old text 
with deep truths. Let's pray and ask Holy Spirit to bless the study of his word this morning. Lord, you sang the first song and you hummed the first tune and you've taken that thing, that, that orchestra of glory toward you and you've given it to us graciously and, and we get to be a part of the symphony of your creation saying, look at our God. This morning, would we bring the entirety of our lives into this room because we want you, Holy Spirit, to tap on it so that every part of our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it would attest to the fact that there is a God who is one that redeems and orchestrates beautiful things for his people. And I can't do that. Only you can. By the power of your spirit, we ask you to move mightily because you can. And we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus, the one who walked out of the tomb. Amen. So first, uh, what is a song? What is a song? Kind of a framing and context for Exodus 15 is uh, they have just uh, had the 10 plagues and Pharaoh has said, okay, you can go. Israelites, get out of here. Moses leaves the people out of Israel. And after that, uh, they're wandering in, the, in a little wilderness and they come up against this Red Sea. And as they come up against the Red Sea, they see that Pharaoh has changed his mind. He has let uh, the, 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 the wheels of his economy go. And he's going to get back his slaves to make his economy go and move forward as a leading nation in the world. Or he will kill them. No matter what, he will win the day. And so the Israelites uh, then have this Red Sea parted. They walk through it on dry land. They're on the other side of it. And as the, the, the Egyptians go and follow the Israelites, the water and the walls cave in on them and, and it kills the Egyptians. And then here's where Moses and the Israelites are. They're delivered through the Red Sea. And what do they do? They sing. Now, why would we look at a song that's thousands of years old now in the year of 2023? What would it have for us? And it's because we are the same as them and they are the same as us. The Israelites and you and I this morning, we are built to sing. Now, I'm tone deaf, you probably are too, but, but we're built to sing because we're built for worship. But here's what I mean. We're built and our hearts can't not assign something or someone worth, value, acclaim, and esteem. We can't not call something ultimate and orchestrate our entire lives around that very thing that we sing to, that we worship to. And one way that we do that is singing. So, happy birthday to you. Happy Is it someone's birthday today? Shall we? Is that okay? We're not going to do it. Um, okay. Were it to be someone's birthday, uh, we would look at them and say, this is your day. Happy birthday to you. And we'd sing, right? For he's a jolly good fellow. For, there's songs that we, we put value and worth on someone or some things, some ones. Rocky top, you'll always. 
I see, I see. We're built to assign value to the things in our lives and then orchestrate our lives around that thing. That's what we're built to do. We're built to sing, and singing assigns a claim to someone who deserves it in light of life. Singing assigns a claim to someone in light of what's happened and what's going to happen. And there's a point in which where, where we think to ourselves, no matter who you are, you think, I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty great, actually. And, and the problem in the world is that the people around me are too blind to see how good and awesome I really am. Because if they knew how awesome I was and how great I was, they would sing to me. They would assign value and worth and esteem to me. And we're in the book of Exodus right now, the second book of the Bible. And a few hundred years from now, history will go on, and still in the Old Testament, there's the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel tells us about the, the kingdom of Israel and how kings start this, this throne of leading God's people. And the first one is Saul. And King Saul, is, he looks good, but really he's not that great of a king. And there's this one moment in 1 Samuel 17 where this David and Goliath story happens. And you may know it, no matter how acquainted you are with the Bible, where this Philistine, the enemy of God's people, Philistine giant Goliath is mocking God and everyone's terrified of him, including Saul. And the first Uber Eats in the world, King David, shepherd boy little David, brings his brother a meal on the front lines. And he hears what Goliath is saying. And he's saying, how can you let this happen? He goes and he, and he kills Goliath. And as there's this big parade, because the people have only known fear, as they stand up against Goliath, and he's gone. And they have a parade and they celebrate and they sing. And what's the song that they sing? They sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And it says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Saul's paranoid and he's jealous because of a song. Why? It's because his self-love thought I deserve all of the things that are being said of David. But instead, this little shepherd boy gets the thing that I so want and I think I deserved. We think we deserve a song sung to us by others. And when we get it, we're coddled. And when we don't get it, we're crushed. Like Michael Scott says in the office, uh, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. <laughs> the power of a song is not in a tune. The power of a song is that we ascribe worth and value and acclaim to someone. And because of that, it's impossible tr to truly sing and truly worship if we, just, if we don't get out of our own way. 
to that point, we, we can see that flushed out because the Israelites never get on the far side of the Red Sea as they've been delivered and say, look what we did. It's just like we drew it up. Perfect, to a T. They don't say that. The enemy they've known for 400 years that has oppressed them violently, harshly, and humanely is now dead because God is victorious and they sing about God and worship God. And every week we'd come into this room, we fill it with voices because we all need to look at one thing and one person and give a claim and worth and value to it. What is a song? It's making much and deeming something as ultimate. And that's why we sing every week. So if, if that's what a song is, if that's what worship is, deeming something ultimate, giving it worth, value, esteem, acclaim, what do the Israelites say? And that's this, this next idea. What we sing, what we sing. In Exodus 15, uh, they've just gone through the Red Sea. Right? They've just seen their enemy and captor that they have known for generations and generations and hundreds of years uh, be absolutely taken over. The thing that, that the people they could never take over have been taken over and taken out. And what do they do? They sing. They, they have this big celebratory song. And everything that they do, that they, that, that they do and, and talk about is that they assign affection to the one that did all of it. They look at the Red Sea and they see everything and then they start singing about it and about the one who made it happen. And it says in verses one to five, they talk about God, the power of God. And they say, verse one, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. What the song notes in the first five verses is that God's character and his actions go together. We can't see his character without his actions. We can't see his actions without his character. And when we encounter those, what we do in response is we sing. We worship. We give him esteem and glory and acclaim. But, but, but there's a shift that happens just after this. Because in verses 6 to 12, what we see and what we hear about is they're talking directly to God their personal God, the one who has delivered them, that, that, that holds them as the apple of his eye. They talk to that God and they say, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy and, and the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of our nostrils, the waters pile up, piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind. 
The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the nations? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. They're talking to their God about the real things that had just happened, and they're assigning worth and esteem and acclaim. And everything they say, and every single verse, is permeated by the fact of what's said in verse 3. And in verse 3, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now, the Lord is my strength and my song, he's become my salvation. Those are um, Christianese words in a way. Right? You hear them often, and there's a temptation and ease for them to be a bit dull, to kind of gloss over them, because you hear them often. And they can lose value because of that. But in verse 3, what we see is the word salvation. And in verse 3, what we see is the word salvation used for the first time ever in the story of Scripture. And they're saying, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord has delivered me from danger. He took us from the place of evil, Egypt, and he's overthrown the human ruler of evil, Pharaoh, and he's taken them out and he's delivered us from their captivity and their oppression. What do they sing? They sing and they worship about God as they see the realities of the Red Sea and they see their deliverance and their salvation and their experience. They sing what they know. And for the Christian faith to really grab hold of our affections, we have to sing the things in which we know to be true. How God has dealt with us and who God is. Because when we see how God has dealt with us, we see his character. And when we see his character, we then see how God has dealt with us. And when we see those things, what we do is we respond in worship respond in song. And that's why oftentimes lofty and hollow and maybe romantic spirituality and religiosity just just doesn't win against the realities and the rigor of life. That they'll melt away awfully fast when they go head to head. But instead worship about God is grounded in the very things you have experienced And it looks at those things just like the Israelites looked at the Red Sea and says, the Lord is writing the story. The Lord is a God who delivers. And we look at those things and we say, God has led the way. There's a theologian who who lived hundreds of years ago and he, he was said to be the smartest person to ever step foot on this continent. His name was Jonathan Edwards. And one thing that he said was, uh, men will trust in God no further than they know him. And they cannot uh, be in the exercise of faith in him one ace further than they have sight of his fullness and faithfulness in exercise. What does that say? It's saying to worship and know and have faith in God, it has to be a, a street level. It can't be this concept that's nebulous and ethereal and up there. We need God to encounter us in the grit of life, and he has. 
And that's the journey of faith. Because the biggest shift in your life and in your journeying with Jesus is when you begin to see the things in your life and you run it through the filter of God's character. The actions and the events and the things that have transpired in your world have to run through the character of God because God is ruler of all. And what he's doing with us, his people, and asking us to trust him is saying, nothing can happen without running through the filter of my character. My character of power and of goodness and of faithfulness and of kindness and of generosity and of all the things that he is. Nothing can happen without him saying and giving the final say. Everything runs through the character of God. Now, if we zoom out for a second, we need to have um, good short-term memory because the things the Israelites are praising and worshiping God for was not their idea. They didn't ask for the Red Sea. They didn't draw it up this way because just a few verses ago, really, they were standing at the other side of the Red Sea saying, Moses and God, why did you take us out of Egypt? Was it because there weren't enough graves there to die that you brought us here to die? And then what God does is he opens up the Red Sea, he walks them through, leads them through, destroys the enemy, and then on this side of the sea, they sing out praises to God. What this whole sea thing is was not their idea or their thought. The things that we worship often and that incite worship often are the things in which we don't plan for. The ways that we didn't write the story. The things we often didn't choose for ourselves. And yet those are the places in which oftentimes produce in us a song because it shows us God is still with his people. Now, with that in mind, the question for you is, what did you not plan? What did you not plan for? All of a sudden, there's something in your life that says, I didn't, I didn't have this in the cards. And the next move, I don't really know what it looks like. I didn't want this to happen, plan for it to happen, ask for it to happen, and here I am. Or maybe you're in a different spot, and you're through it. And you're looking back on it, like the Israelites are looking back on the Red Sea, and you're saying, Lord, look at what you did. I see how you moved. I see how gracious you were. You are alone, the only living God. Because for all of us, no matter who you are, no matter what time of the world and history you are, this is a model for us. Here's what I mean. All of us at some point are on the western part of the Red Sea. Or we're being pushed up against it. And the, the, the Egyptians are coming back to either take us captive again or to kill us. And we're between a body of water and we're saying, God, I, I don't know what's next. I'm wondering what you're up to. Or maybe you're at a point in a season of life where you're trying to put one foot in front of the other. Or there's, or there's walls of water and God's leading you through the Red Sea. Or maybe you're through it. And you're looking back on the thing that God did that you didn't plan, but he worked and he moved. And you said, look at what you did, God. All of us are living always in relation to the Red Sea, whether we're before it, in it, or after it. 
What for you did you not plan on? And what is God asking you to trust him as he leads you through it? You know, one of my favorite things on a Sunday morning, and this is going to come across pretty, pretty creepy, is I love watching y'all. I love watching you sing. I love watching you worship. And it's because uh, all of you, whether I know you well or not, have had hard knocks in life. And yet, no matter what, you look with people on your left and your right, we all look at the same thing and the same person, and together we're trying to cling to the same truth. What do we sing? We sing a claim to a person as we look at the rigor of the realities of life and say, God, you're still leading the way. Whether we're pushed up against the Red Sea, whether we're walking in the Red Sea, or whether we're post on the other side of it, of your deliverance. We sing about the realities and how we've encountered the character of God and the actions of God in our life because he's our God. But why do we sing? Lastly, why do we sing? Uh, There are parts of this chapter in this song that talks about the enemies and how whether uh, God will um, put fear in them and they will fear God or whether God will just knock them out. Like God will extinguish the enemy like he did the Israelites, or the, excuse me, the Egyptians. Big difference there. Um, and, and there's points in which that say God sink, sunk the, Israel, the Egyptians like stones, like lead the Egyptians sunk to the bottom of the Red Sea. It's pretty graphic language. And we can look at this kind of Old Testament passage and think to ourselves, I'm so glad Jesus is here because there's that Old Testament God I just didn't want to face. Or maybe even just a little kind of glass half full, we look at it and say, I just don't know how to deal with this. This is a lot of tension. How do I reconcile the fact that God uh, does this? And what we need to note is that God's character can't allow evil to coexist with the plan for his people. And that is a very, very good thing. And in fact, that's the good thing. That were God to look at the Egyptians and say to them, hey, you know what? I I know the Israelites. And they can be real whiny at times. And so they're kind of weak people. That's why I chose them, but, but you saw they were weak people too, so I'm going to let you off the hook this time. Here's a little hall pass. Right? Were he to do that, were he to say about God's people's oppressors, hey, you know, here's a hall pass, would be awfully cruel and insensitive. Because if we were to talk about what the Egyptians did to the Israelites, your appetite would be gone for lunch. And so when God takes the people that oppress and want nothing more than to destroy his people and destroy his good plan for his people and the world, it's a good thing that the all-powerful God moves on behalf of his people. That God will eliminate the very thing that threatens them. And he's not this Old Testament God. He's the same God in all time, in all space, He's perfect in power. And he's perfectly relating to and leading his people. 
And because he does that to God's people and because you are God's people, God will eliminate the very thing that threatens you. And God will eliminate the very thing that threatens you in his redeeming plan for you. And here's what I mean. Three and a half years ago, my father-in-law passed away. And he had two funerals. One was in this room and the other was in, in Florida. And at his service in Florida, uh, his brother, uh, Timo, got up and spoke about him, Ted. And Timo spoke about uh, his brother and said uh, a lot of things. Uh, But he said this. He said, In the summer of 1966, our hero, Ted and I, Timo sang, our hero, our older brother Rick, sits down with Ted and I and he tells us about Jesus. Death was solved that moment for us forever. Ted is a child of God in that moment, in 1966, and he's not more a child of God now at his funeral than he was then. And he won't be more a child of God in two billion years. And Rick looked at us in that day in 1966 and asked if we wanted to receive Christ. I didn't know what the answer was. I looked at Ted. Ted said yes. So I said yes. And we're in. Now, every single Sunday after that, we sing about death. We sing about it. I'm not scared of it. I sing at it. Death is defeated. It's the only thing Ted and I ever won. Why do we sing. We sing because if you are in Christ, no thing can be taken from you. If you are in Christ, all things are yours because your God is the one that says, I am a redeemer. I bring salvation to the point in which I'm going to eliminate the things that you can't, your enemy. In Revelation 15, John writes this last book of the Bible, and he writes about how human history culminates, and he gives these depictions, and it's it's strange almost the entire book, but, but he gives us depictions about how it all ends and what it all looks like, and it's good. And he sees, and in Revelation 15, there's this sea, and next to this sea, is, there's these people. And the people next to the sea are singing. Just like Exodus 15. And in Revelation 15, it says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. The reality of Exodus 15 echoes to the last book of the Bible and into eternity. 
Because in Exodus 15, God's people stand next to a sea and talk about how God has been victorious over their enemy, the Egyptians. And in Revelation 15, God's people stand next to a sea and sing about how God has been victorious over their enemy, the thing they could never defeat, Satan and sin and death. And we stand between those two realities and we look at a sea right now and that sea is a cross because on the cross, Jesus stood directly on dry land and the walls that were pushed to the side that we walked through on dry ground crashed onto him. And he walked out of it. And together we sing about that person who has looked at the enemy you and I could never win a battle against sin and death. And he says, there's no thing your enemy can take from you because you are mine. And because of that, we sing. Let's pray. It's hard to think about Exodus because it's just such another world. And it's hard to think about Revelation because it too is just another world. It seems so far. And yet, because you are the grand story writer and you are the author of song, these are two realities that we find ourselves in between this very day, Lord. And because of that, and because of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb that he walked out of, we walk out with him singing. When our hearts are faint, let your song be the one we rise to. And when our hearts are full, may your song be the one that comes across our lips. As we look at the things that mark our life, the rigor of our life, we sing because you are God. The God of Israel's salvation and of our salvation. We pray this in Christ. In his name alone, amen. Our life, the rigor of our life, we sing because you are God. The God of Israel's salvation and of our salvation. We pray this in Christ, in his name alone, amen.